0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. We're all familiar with the grand, uh, possibly grandiose, promises that were made about the potential of genomic medicine as we rounded the corner into the 21st century. We were going to cure everything, fix everything, prevent everything. Everyone was going to live forever. Well, No, but remember how much time we spent worrying about the hazards of knowing what you were going to die of. Um, If you want to know what you're going to die of, on average, I think you're still best off consulting an actuary and not a geneticist. But a bit more slowly than anticipated, and in retrospect, what we anticipated was nuts, we have pulled clinical insights from the mass of genetic and genomic data, like pearls from oysters, oysters widely scattered in a vast ocean. Better than pearls, because pearls are just shiny objects, and these prizes are more like magic beans, which can grow into a vine. And um, I guess um, Jack only used his vine to rob that poor giant, but our vine can save a life, maybe multiple lives. (laughs) Okay, I've worked that metaphor to death. I've killed it. Hello? I would like to report a metaphor murder. Um, Moving on. We're at a funny spot. We spent decades saying it's early days, and 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 you know what? It it is not early days anymore. Genomic medicine is a real thing, and yet, not the revolution part. It's a challenging time for what we call translational medicine, and it's a good time to ask how are we doing, which is a great question. I mean, that's a little self-serving because I just asked the question, but it is a, a real question. And and look, I have the perfect person to ask, Noura. Abul Husson has done many things in her career as a clinician and researcher, and all of them have focused on the translational piece. Welcome, Nora. Thank you. So, Nora has roots here in New York City, where I am, where she got an MD-PhD from Mount Sinai and later served as the first clinical director of the Institute for Genomic Health and chief of genomic medicine. And uh, now she's abandoned us for California, mostly, um, and abandoned academia for 23andMe where she is the vice president for genomic health. And I totally want to get back to that before we go. But first, I have some other questions. So, Nora, you're going to say this because you're very young, which is not to say that you're a child or anything. But in context of of everything that you've done and all that you've already accomplished, you're very young. So you were really the first generation of genetic professionals who came of age in a post Human Genome Project world, and I was wondering, um, thinking about that, when you were starting out in this field, what were your expectations?
1: Um, well, thank you for thinking that I'm very young. <laughs> I, I think, in the context of where we are with genomics today, um, I would agree, uh, and. I think that actually that's one of the reasons where we were with the Human Genome Project and where things were heading were reasons that I wanted to pursue a career in clinical genetics, because what was drawing me to that field was, was really not the, the way that medical genetics has traditionally served rare diseases and pediatric populations and has, has been siloed in many ways. It was that promise of how genomics was going to permeate across medical specialties. That was the draw. Uh, And so, you know, my training in internal medicine, which gives you this really broad overview of common diseases and not so common diseases that touch humans in their adulthood, and that medical genetics training that focuses on more rare, more pediatric-focused conditions, I thought was going to be the way to allow me to think really more creatively and more broadly about genomic medicine. And that's what I wanted to do, even though I didn't probably at that time know at all what that meant.
0: You you have a phrase in your bio that says you were pioneering genome-first approaches, and I'd like you to sort of expound on a little bit on what that is and whether you feel that it's worked.
1: Yeah, well, I mean I'll answer the second part first. It's definitely worked. Uh, I think many, many in the field on the mostly on the research side would agree that um, this is something that's worked. Now, what is it? Uh, genome-first approaches, I sort of um coined that phrase to think about inversing the paradigm of where we put genetics. Uh, in in, clinical care or in research, and traditionally what we've done is we look at people based on a family history or a phenotype, a characteristic or a trait that's brought them to medical attention, and then we decide what's the most appropriate strategy for testing, for genetic testing, uh, and in order to discern if there is a genetic etiology for what they're presenting with. A genome-first approach is is turning that around. So you start with the genetics, and you take a population, a cohort, whatever it is. Again, lots of this has been done on the research side, Um, but you take the genetics um, of people and then try to understand what their genotypes, what their genetic makeup is telling us about them. And you gain new insights that way because you're not starting with a a hypothesis. You're not starting with a phenotype first. You're starting with the genome first and then letting the genome tell you uh, what it has to say about associations with disease, about disease onset severity, um, about whether people are are reacting differently to having that particular gene variant, for example. Uh, I think it's really exciting to see how probably over the last, I think, seven years or so, so many studies have come out that apply a genome-first approach to biobanks, to different cohorts, to gain these types of insights and how some of them are leading to new therapeutics, for example. Uh, it, it's a very exciting time for that.
0: So you've, you've mentioned a couple a couple of times in what you uh in, in the, your answer, you said, especially in research or among researchers. And I, I think it's a moment in time where there's a real divide. Um, certainly, that approach uh, is an obvious move for researchers looking at therapeutics and so on. Right. Like we've had lots of people diving in and trying to find therapies that way. Uh, so you published along with Michael Murray and Moon Curry. He published this summer a paper entitled Addressing the Routine Failure to Clinically Identify Monogenic Cases of Common Disease in Genome Medicine. He published that this summer. So this is monogenic disease, so more what should be the the low-hanging fruit, not the complicated phenotype, and the clinical failures. And, And so there's a big gulf between what you're talking about on the research side and what you're describing in the clinical side. Um, so you say in that paper that monogenic case identification failures are commonplace in routine clinical care, so you yes. want to expand on what you what you mean there?
1: Yeah, I'd love to, and you know I think I think you you know hit the nail on the head, Laura. We are so far along in what we've done in genomics research, and the clinical side is is following at a much slower pace. I don't think that's unusual to translate research into clinical care takes time, but it seems particularly long when we've innovated so much in genomics that we're not quite there on the clinical side. So that paper, um, really, you know, Moeen, Mike, and I were thinking long and hard about um, what what is the low-hanging fruit here, and it we've all come at this from different perspectives, and uh, reach the same conclusions that we know so much that actually benefits patients and humans on the on the clinical side uh, in genomics and we're not putting that to use today and we give several examples in this paper, uh, you know, one example that I love to use because I think it's so crystal clear is that we know that every person today with ovarian cancer should be getting genetic testing. There are guidelines around this. There are therapeutic strategies linked to knowledge of a genetic variant that's underlying cancer in in people. Um, Yet today in the U.S., it's estimated that only 30% of people with ovarian cancer are getting genetic testing. And so, you know, we really, we need to think about what are the barriers that are preventing us from accessing genetic testing in a way that we know it ought to be used today to help people live longer, healthier, better lives. Um, so really, that the point that that paper is making is that if you go ahead and treat everybody with, you know, ovarian cancer or colorectal cancer or breast cancer or other examples that we give with that cancer, but not identifying the underlying monogenic etiology, that is suboptimal care. And we could do better, and we need better guidelines to make sure that we are accessing that the genetic testing, that people know how to order tests and interpret results and use that to manage patients in the best way possible. So we we're really hoping with that paper to, you know, spur that conversation and move Uh, move the field forward to really expand on how we're using genomics in clinical care.
0: So you have a number of examples that are in that paper, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, coronary artery disease, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I mean, I've had person after person who works in those fields, who works with colorectal patients, who work with cardiac patients, come on and say, it's The population is totally under-tested, like such a tiny percentage of the people who have these mutations have them identified. And it's frustrating because we know we can help them. We, We have interventions. The other thing about those diseases is they're not only clear, they're also we know what to do when we find them. I have a couple of questions. The first one is, are those examples or is that a list? (laughs) Because, (laughs) Because it's sort of like the examples we would really always pick, right? And if you look at like the ACMG genes to check, like so many of them really fall under those areas.
1: Yeah, I think <laughs> in in our view, it's a starting point. And we picked those examples as the ones having, you know, the most buy-in, the most evidence behind them. Some of them have clear societal guidelines, recommending testing, um, and, and that actionability. I think you'd probably get a multitude of answers depending on whom you asked, uh, what would be most appropriate to, you know, add or remove from that list. And the way we thought about this is that we need there needs to be uh, an exercise in developing a list, maintaining that and updating it over time so that it's really clear. We need to take away the magic from genetics that's you know prohibiting its generalization, its root, routine use. In clinical care, and the way to do that is to establish clear guidelines that non-genetic specialists are also going to be able to adopt into their practice. So this was a starting point. I, I certainly wouldn't say this is a you know comprehensive list or a static list in any way, uh, but you know we agreed that this was this would be a good place for us to start today.
0: Yeah, and the the study that you did, uh, you looked at patients who had testing for no particular reason, right? You looked at people who were just a part of a program that got this genetic testing and found that amongst those who had screened positive for these disorders, 10% of them already had a diagnosis. So they they should have been found, right? That's the point. They should have been found by their diagnosis and had testing. They shouldn't have had to wait for a uh, just participation in a study, right? Did that, so that's a a, a pretty big percentage. Did that surprise you? Did you think it was going to be smaller? Did you think it was going to be bigger?
1: I'm trying trying to remember what my reaction was. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, I think, uh, I think you know we we had suspicions. We we've known now for some years that under testing is a problem and that even if you were to take existing clinical criteria for who should be seeing a genetic counselor and getting assessed for genetic testing, would still miss in some cases half of the people who end up harboring a pathogenic variant and a disease-associated gene. Um, so so we know we're we're missing we're missing a lot of folks that should have been tested at the point at which they were diagnosed with a condition. Um, You know, that number is probably going to be variable based on which condition we're talking about. Um, Ovarian cancer, there are going to be a larger proportion of people who have a genetic variant identified than perhaps breast cancer. But the point is, we're at we're today we're in a place where genetic testing is is no longer the expensive, difficult process it once was, uh, and so if you take everybody with these conditions and test them, that, eventually is going to optimize health outcomes, reduce cost, and really improve healthcare. I think we have enough evidence to say that concretely today, and so we now need to provide those next steps to to actually make this happen, to fulfill that promise. And and to me, this really is the lowest hanging fruit in clinical genetics today.
0: So you mentioned, um, you know, to look at the reasons why people weren't getting tested. So I was like, let's look at some of the some of the usual suspects, right? Our usual suspects list. I'm sure it's not just one thing. Doctors, um, how much are they the obstacle Uh, I remember when ACMG first came out with its list of genes to test, and it was the ACMG 57 back then. And I remember uh, talking to somebody who worked in a lab who said that some doctors were like, great, you know, fantastic. This organizes for me what I'm going to get back. And they said a number of doctors said to them, oh, I'm so glad they put this list down because now I know exactly what to tell you not to give me. This is what I don't want. I don't want these. Because they were like, oh, these were things that would force them to have to do actions that were outside their comfort zone, right? Like they they get information back on cancer and they weren't oncologists. They get information back on cardiac genes and they weren't cardiologists, and so on. They were like, don't give me this. So that was a long time ago, and I'm sure it's better. But are they still are they still uncomfortable with the results? Like, are in in what ways are doctors still the barriers?
1: Yeah, I know. I do think things are better. So I'm thankful for that. I, I think we've seen a lot of changes over the last, you know, probably decade. Um, full disclosure, I do sit on that committee with the ACMG who evaluates disease gene pairs for inclusion on this list. Uh, so, you know, I feel very strongly that this is something um, that we should be doing and that uh, is, is the right thing to do. Um But how do doctors feel about it? Well, I think it depends on which doctor. And I think there are such differing levels of familiarity with genetics in this day and age. I think there are certain groups, for example, uh, oncologists who are much more familiar with genetics. Uh, Cardiologists also are more routinely using genetic testing in practice. Um, And then outside of that, you know, there probably aren't neurologists. You know, there there are certain groups that that are more accustomed and and think that genetic testing is very useful in clinical care. And then um, there are probably many physicians still who think that genetics does not have to do with how they practice medicine. And I think that that's what we still need to change. It's a a bit of a culture shift um, to have people recognize that, again, you know, genomics is something that touches all disease areas at all stages of life. Uh, and there may be ways that it impacts your management for your patients, regardless of what their, you know, their disease areas or specialty is. Um, we're, we're not there yet. I don't I don't think it's because there's an unwillingness as much anymore. But that unfamiliarity with how to best use genetic information, I think, is still a barrier Um we need to figure out ways to expand genomics knowledge across non-genetic specialties. I started something at Mount Sinai to train residents in internal medicine who were interested in genomics. Actually, I should say not just those who were interested, but uh, everybody who entered the internal medicine residency program started getting a Genomics 101, uh, a curriculum that was really designed to give you information about genomic medicine you had not received in medical school because today we're not teaching that as part of the core medical curriculum. And this has been really well received. It's an ongoing program. People afterwards in the internal medicine residency can elect to complete a specialized track in genomic medicine to gain increased knowledge in that realm. And what was really interesting to me, this is only a couple years old now, um, is that people who had intentions of pursuing a variety of specialties, uh, were interested in the track, including, you know, nephrology and cardiology and vascular medicine and others. And I started to think that this could be a really cool way to see genomics knowledge across, you know, medicine specialties, at least, subspecialties. Uh, So, And other programs have expressed interest in doing something similar. Uh, You know, it's not super easy to get something like that off the ground, and there has to be commitment from an institution to really dedicate resources to do something like that. But, you know, at least uh, at Mount Sinai, which has always been really interested in genomics and in, in innovating in that space, there was that commitment to educating the next generation of physicians, not to turn them into medical geneticists, which is such a highly specialized field, but to allow them to bring genomic medicine into their area of specialty, and I love that way of thinking. And I think we need more of that.
0: Yeah, I often talk to genetic counselors ab- about like what will the world look like in the future. And you have to assume that routine genetics is more incorporated into every specialty. So I could say like in the future, maybe you'll do less of the routine and more of the unusual cases, um, complicated cases and so on. Because like you said, it's it's not going to be they're not going to all turn into medical geneticists, geneticists but right. And, and I, we've seen that we've seen the change with oncologists who now deal with this all the time, right?
1: Exactly. And I, you know, I do think that if we want to think about the doctors, like. You know, there, there is that piece that in the medical genetics field, medical geneticists and genetic counselors, we have wanted to be the gatekeepers of this type of technology and complex information. And I think for all the right reasons, there were a lot of concerns about, you know, negative aspects that were worrisome having to do with genetics. And so, uh, you know, we created in doing that some barriers to accessing genetic testing. Um, which may have made sense uh, many, many years ago, but probably as the number of, you know, genetic counselors and geneticists is, is growing, but not at a rate where we can continue to really encompass all things genetics in all areas of medicine. So, exactly as you said, Laura, I think it's time for us as the, you know, the specialists in this field to own like the complexity, to lead this change, and then to Allow the generalized use of, you know, less complex, more routine genetic testing in other areas of clinical medicine.
0: Well, I'm I've got to say I was part of my follow-up question, which you got to before I had to ask it, was about medical education and were you seeing a difference in sort of younger doctors, older doctors. And I'm surprised and a bit dismayed for you to say that it's still a big initiative to get more basic genetics into medical Uh, curricula, because we've been talking about this for two decades, and (laughs) I would have thought we would be sort of more there by now. I mean, obviously, the the amount of testing's going up, et cetera, et cetera. But let me get to my other usual suspects. Why we're not where we want to be in terms of catching even the low-hanging fruit of monogenic cases. Insurance reimbursement criteria is, is getting payers to cover the cost of testing an obstacle to it.
1: Yeah. Again, I think that depends on what what's on the list, right? And I think the things that um, we uh, put forth, there are there are mechanisms for reimbursement, but those aren't completely standardized today. Uh, so I think it's important to bring payers into the conversation. Payers are looking for evidence of cost effectiveness and clinical utility um, for testing those data are coming out uh, or already exist for many cases. And we need to understand how can we get more testing to be routinely reimbursed. I think that that's a conversation that needs to happen with payers as part of the stakeholders in in the group. Uh, So hopefully we just keep seeing more and more expansion of testing and reimbursement that way.
0: What bothers me is I've had a number of conversations recently where people say money isn't a barrier anymore because, look, the tests don't cost so much anymore, which is partly true, right? Because they don't cost $4,000, they cost $250, right? But if you accept $250 as being enough money that it's not a barrier to entry, you're really cutting off a lot of people. You're, yeah, you're, you're really making this something for whom? I mean, because we're rarely saying do this test for two hundred and fifty dollars and it will absolutely save your life. Right. Like we're mostly saying, like, well, you know, you might find something out. Um, and at that price point, two hundred fifty dollars is a lot of money for a lot of people.
1: I completely agree. And I think that that's that's not the right approach. You know, if you want to ensure equitable access to testing, um, then we need more uniform Reimbursement of these types of tests.
0: So uh, another of the obstacles I thought of is on the patient side. Um, certainly, in early days, there was a lot of hesitation about genetic testing. Got to be less, but I'm not out there. Do you do you still find any uh, patient hesitation to do genetic testing?
1: Um, I, I don't think that it's all gone away. Uh, but I but I think that the landscape is quite different. People continue to have uh, meaningful concerns with respect to data, privacy, and, um, you know, discrimination and the potential for that. We know there are measures in place to mitigate some of those risks, but those are real concerns. I think they're valid ones. Um, I think there are concerns that people uh, maybe have less of that are having to do with how genetic information may be used uh, you know, in a, in a malicious way. Um, and and then there are other types of barriers that perhaps, you know, genetics has nothing to do with, you know, what I might have and, and a lack of awareness of the role of genetic information in health and disease. Uh, so that could be a barrier as well. I think that um, some of that is improving. You know, I will bring up 23andMe, I guess, at this point, because, you know, genetics is, Become a household name because of uh, the type of testing you can get through direct to consumer. So there is more awareness, uh, and I think geneticists, uh, you know, on the clinical side, recognize that to some extent. Um, I don't know that that translates to understanding the, the impact that genetic information might have on health. So that's. Well, I the- think.
0: I think you already brought up 23andMe because you used the word gatekeepers several times. So. <laughs> Unintentional. <laughs> yes. So like right there I thought like ah here it explains everything. <laughs> 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 it would the anti gatekeepers. No, I'm I'm just teasing. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think it's more familiar. I don't know if it's in, I, I I think that people's anxieties about whether or not genetic testing will be used against them are certainly less than they were. Um not less than they should be less than they were i i think there is a lot to get over in the sense of that if something is genetic that it's uh addressable i, right. I don't know that that's common knowledge that because saying something is genetic can feel like the equivalent to saying there's nothing you can do about it we yeah. in the field feels like if we identify a genetic cause that means there's tons we can do about it
1: yeah i i agree and I think there, there. I think there's certainly more that we can do to to broaden like the, the the lay public's knowledge about genetics and its role in in health and disease. I'm really interested in in that particular area. The other thing, you know, I think is an important aspect to bring up is we often have perceptions of how um, different population groups, people with different racial and ethnic makeup, will. Uh, react to the idea of something like genetic testing. And we have these, uh, you know, perceived notions that we think, um, you know, underserved populations or minority groups are going to be less interested in genetic testing. And one of the things that I looked at at Mount Sinai was how did people respond to the opportunity to receive genetic results through their participation in our biobank, our institutional biobank, and broke that down by population group based on self-report once people were given that option. So people were asked on their consent forms, would you be interested in receiving genetic results results? Related to actionable conditions, um, by your participation in, in this biobank, and answered yes or no. And we just looked at that. And we looked at what are demographic characteristics associated with responses. And it turned out I mean, the majority of people were very interested. Over 90% of people were indicated they were interested in receiving that kind of information. And so we looked by self reported population group, racial, ethnic group, and found that uh, actually everyone was really high up, again, over 90%. The most interested were our Hispanic, Latino population, which I don't know that that was something that we would have expected because, again, we've learned over time that we have these preconceived notions that certain populations may be less interested in these new medical advances and technologies. And I think we have to be really careful about those biases and not assume that. And, you know, part of what I wonder is, are we not offering genetic testing to people because we assume they are not interested or would be concerned about getting that testing? And the more we do that, the more we are likely to Um, you know, exacerbate health disparities in this field. So I I just would caution anyone listening to be really careful and ask the question, uh, because when we asked a very diverse patient population, it turned out that people were interested across the board. And our, you know, Hispanic Latino population, our African-American population, which were, you know, large populations in our biobank, were very interested in receiving these kinds of
0: results. Which is actually fantastic to know because we've worried, we continue to worry, we correctly worry about trust issues with those populations based on not fantasies, historical realities uh, of uh, things that the medical caregivers, medical, medical, what do you call it, that medicine has done um, in the past. And uh, unfortunately, in the present, that would make people have less trust. And it's great that they're expressing interest because yeah. um, it sort of suggests that maybe we've made some progress on those trust issues.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I'll add one more thing that we I thought also was interesting was we have a, a really large Spanish speaking population, uh, obviously in New York City. Um, so that's not surprising. And when we looked at whether that impacted interest in receiving results it turned out that people who had spanish as their preferred language were much more likely to want to receive results than people with english as their first language
0: really yeah
1: yeah, yeah so you
0: we, know. we weren't asking them in the right language
1: um <laughs> well, yeah so this was asked in spanish for the record
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great so one last one last area uh in terms of the obstacles, um, electronic health records. Yeah. So uh, electronic health records can in some ways be unfriendly to genomic information. Um, how much of a problem do you see that as, and are, are we, like, on our way to fixing it?
1: It is a problem uh, that we are on our way to fixing, slowly but surely. maturely. One of the big issues has been the way genetic results are reported and then integrated or not integrated into electronic medical records. Um, traditionally, uh, and that means today, <laughs> in today times, we receive genetic results from um, genetic testing entities as a PDF report uh, that gets scanned into the medical record. Um, it is it's difficult to search for genetic results because of the way that they're uh, inputted into the medical record. And uh, even though there have been some advances with many companies having their own web portals and things like that, there is a lack of integratedness with medical records in health systems. Uh, I mean, there's a lack of integration of medical records, you know, across the country more generally. But but this is a problem having to do with the way genetic results. Uh, the the, the way the reporting is. It's complicated. It doesn't look like a CBC, for example, uh, that you can structure into medical records. And so... There are things being done. There are, um, you know, new newer ways of integrating information, of extracting structured information from genetic reports, and putting those into the medical record so they are searchable, uh, so they're more visible to any clinician who is looking at someone's medical record. I think there is a still a long way to go to bring that to the forefront of, you know, the way we see other labs in existence in in medical records. But but I am enthusiastic that uh, there is a path forward. Related to that, the other problem is storing the data. And if people are exceedingly getting um, gene sequencing panels or exome or genome sequencing results, then the report itself can be integrated into the medical record in some way, but there's a whole lot of other data that has been generated that exists completely separately from the medical record in most cases. Uh, so there is some work to be done to figure out even further integration.
0: Oh, I wanted to point to a very interesting comment in the paper. You said that the routine return of variants of uncertain significance should be, and I'm quoting this, reevaluated. So that brought up for me uh, something I overheard in the sense that you overhear something on Twitter, right? Like I was watching a discussion between people who were cancer specialists about the very, very high rate of variants of uncertain significance that come back with um, cancer susceptibility testing and the advantages of having those there and the disadvantages of having them there. The disadvantages being, of course, having to explain them, follow up on them and so on. Um, And the advantages uh, sort of gathering more information moving forward, like that's how we get smarter about it, um, is uh, having more information on what happens with families where there are those variants. So if you don't label them, you lose that information. So you're saying that we should, that if we give back fewer variants of uncertain significance, it's going to make interpretation easier and therefore broaden the ability of who can do it, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the variants of uncertain significance, I always used to say, were the bane of geneticist's ex- existence and genetic counselors, for sure. Um, so you can only imagine non-genetics providers being faced with growing numbers of variants of uncertain significance as we include more genes and panels, more genes with less evidence for association with disease in panels, so, you know, what is a way to reduce the risk of misinterpreting information from a report by a non-genetics provider, and uh, and just ensuring that there's clarity and, uh, yeah, less less room for error. Now, that doesn't mean that those variants of uncertain significance should not be. Uh, Held onto by the lab that has done the testing and revisited over time, because we know every once in a while uh, some of those variants do get upgraded to a pathog- pathogenic designation. Uh, I think that's the minority of the time, but we don't want to miss those cases. But I, you know, the 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 way that the results for variants of uncertain significance has been have been displayed on the report, I think, has served the purpose of like putting them somewhere so that. They exist. And then whose responsibility is it to reevaluate them and over what length of time? There, there aren't really standards for that. So we're putting this. You in may for- be
0: kind in saying putting them somewhere, because where they're putting them is in the clinician's pocket. right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like a hot potato. Like, here, <laughs> this is yours now. That, you that's follow a- up on it.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. The, the birthday party game, right? Yes, nobody wants yeah. to with a hot potato. Uh, do people actually play with a hot potato? Um, anyway. That was,
0: that was a long time ago, right? That was, that was, like, that was like, that's how bad games were, like, a hundred years ago. That's what they played with. They let little children play with with overheated vegetables.
1: I'm um, too young to know this.
0: Yeah. Uh, Even well, I'm too young to know Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, that's the idea. You don't want to get stuck with the hot potato. Um, So you're giving it from the lab to the clinician. Right.
1: I think there's a better way. You know, I think um, if labs are going to reevaluate those variants, there should be clear information on how they'll do that, how they'll report back those results. I think the clinicians ought to see what's, you know, what what there's clear action around. Um, You know, the, the way that genomic screening works and if you take if you were to do a population screening program, in most cases, those types of programs are not reporting variants of uncertain significance in the absence of, you know, a, a phenotype driven approach. I think we're on to something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. So that's when you're when you're doing screening of a healthy population Then you tend not to report back the variants of uncertain significance. I think if there were clearer guidelines around how we need to handle um, recontact, I I think right now, sort of, uh, there's a lot of feeling of liability around recontact because people see reclassification not as a natural process the way we would see it, sort of a natural learning process. But if, like, uh, sort of a, uh, they would look at it as like oh a mistake was made you're recontacting me because a mistake was made and there's a lot of liability associated with that idea of this is a mistake yeah and yeah. so whose mistake was it was it the clinician's mistake and if there were some clearer guidelines for everybody around that and and some protection personally i think it would would make it easier to 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 make good decisions about what we do and don't give back and how we hold on to that information
1: yeah yeah that's a really important point i agree
0: So I know we have to end this, wrap this up soon, but I have to ask you about the decision to go from academia to 23andMe. So you've you've left the gatekeepers to go to the gate openers, huh?
1: (laughs) You see, you had a light bulb moment earlier on when I used the word gatekeeper. And now I understand.
0: I know. I was like, oh, my God, she's only been out there a few months and they've already gotten her language. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago if um, this was something that I would consider, I I don't know that I would have said yes. In fact, I'm pretty sure I would not have said yes. I was um, pretty happy in my academic world um, building out genomic medicine programs from inside of a health system. Uh, But, you know, I, I think... Anyway, I'm the kind of person who's excited about new challenges and opportunities. And 23andMe is certainly a new challenge and opportunity uh, with where the future is heading. People are excited to know their genetic information. And the opportunity for me is to make sure that we are providing really clear Genetic information linked to health and disease, clear recommendations around what to do with that information, and building out uh, the robustness of this, you know, (laughs) non-gate-kept, genetics. Uh, And that's an amazing opportunity for someone who's who, you know, what I want to see is more genomics being used to benefit human health. And to me, this is a way to get there, and hopefully faster. Uh, I will say, though, Laura, I haven't completely abandoned my academic side. <laughs> uh, and I think that that's, you know, uh, that that's what makes me really happy. I think I, I in this role, I do get to wear uh, my 23andMe hat. Uh, I do maintain a, a, an academic role as well. And more and more, we're going to see that our paths are not so different, and there is intersection in ways that we can grow the genomics world together. <laughs> is that a nice like kumbaya note to end this? <laughs> it is. It is.
0: It is. It's like uh, uh, the the you're like the the West Coast East Coast genomics mediator. You know, that, that, I, it's amazing how much the it falls along the, those those geographic line
1: i do love california
0: the information libertarians i call them of the west coast you know just get everything out there yes, <laughs> um but
1: they do it responsibly and that's exciting. <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> well she said it i didn't say it so. <laughs> saying nothing unfriendly um yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad. I'm I'm sorry. I'm personally sorry sorry because you've physically located out there. Um and and Nora and I were talking before we got started and she said she was 20 years in New York, which makes her a New Yorker, and that's right. That's right. We're not one of those closed societies where you can live here forever and you're never one. It's true. You're here for New York for for a few years, you are a New Yorker. So you'll always be a New Yorker. Thank you. <laughs> You'll always be welcome here and you'll always be welcome on The Beagle Has Landed. (laughs) Thanks so much. And uh, I appreciate your coming on today to um, discuss the what this translational issues with us and sort of like I I feel like we're having a a checkup of this teenage field that we're in and uh, fast growing. And how is it doing? And uh, it's a mixed bag, right? So we have. We have a distance yet to go. Um, That's my closing word. Thanks, Nora.
1: Thanks so much, Laura.
0: Bye, everyone.